On today's podcast, we'll discuss the unique ways in which humans interact with sharks, some good and some not so good. You'll learn all about a very ambitious Greenland shark that managed to eat a moose. Yeah, you heard that right. And we'll be joined by shark scientist and star of Discovery's Shark Week documentary, Clash of Killers, Great Whites versus Makos, Dr. Riley Elliott. He's going to discuss the mysterious Mako shark, which are the fastest sharks in the world. All that and more is coming up on this episode of Shark Week, the podcast. I'm Luke Tipple, marine biologist and a frequent voice on my favourite things, oceans and sharks. And I'm stoked to bring the magic of Shark Week right to your ears. You know, sharks have been a big part of my life for over 20 years. They're a critical part of the ocean and a conduit to a better understanding life on our planet. So whether you've never seen Shark Week before or you've been a diehard fan over the 30-plus years it's been around, this podcast is for you. We start today's pod with shark speak, and as usual, we start with a slightly absurd headline that makes you go, wait, what? Now, this is one of those really cool stories that highlights just what sharks are capable of, and it's a very little-known species. So, get this. Here's the headline. Moose eating shark makes a splash. Now, you wouldn't be the first to look at that and say, what is a moose eating shark? Yeah, Now, moose are massive. Now, if you've never seen a moose in person, you definitely have to see a moose in person. They're bigger than a car. Like, can you imagine a shark actually going up and eating a moose? How does that even happen? Well, this happened back in 2013 when a 16-year-old boy named Tobias Ball was exploring the Newfoundland Canada beach with his dad. And they came across an eight and a half foot Greenland shark, and this was washed up on the beach. They thought it was dead. They thought, wow, this is really cool. This is a super old shark just chilling on the beach, but it's dead. Until they kicked it with, I mean, nudged it is probably a better way to put it. We don't want to make them seem like they're out there kicking dead sharks around, but they nudged it with their foot and the shark moved its tail. Lo and behold, they had a shark that was in a bad way, washed up on the beach, and it had a huge hunk of moose carcass hanging out of its mouth. Now, this actually got a bit of attention. Then another guy came and kind of helped them out. They figured, let's try to save this shark. The first thing they thought is, why is this shark here? It's probably, they thought, choking, which is somewhat of a plausible thought. Now, if you don't know, Greenland sharks are typically scavengers. It's not unusual for moose to be in those waters either because moose are hunted and once they're dissected and the meat has been taken off, the hunters will sometimes discard them in the water. So that's how we get a Greenland shark coming up out of the depths where it usually exists into fairly shallow water, probably taking a great big hunk of rotting moose in its mouth and perhaps blocking or occluding or somewhat, you know, moving its gills around in such a way that it felt unable to either dislodge it or to breathe very well or whatever. But whatever happened, it was weakened enough that it washed up on the shore. Now, these good Samaritans, they found the shark. They managed, after a very long time, managed to get it back in the water. And lo and behold, this creature that can live to over 200 years old managed to swim away and it was just fine. Now, that got a huge amount of attention. There were onlookers all around. They were all cheering and applauding. And I think that that's such a cool story 
people helping sharks out. We're learning about the vulnerabilities of sharks to being a little bit gluttonous at times. And we've got a little studied species that has been exposed to people on the beach and managed to make it away safely while everyone got to learn just a little bit more about them, such as apparently they have a taste for moose. So watch out, moose. Don't walk near the water. The Greenland sharks are coming to get you. That'll be the next title you see in the mirror or something next week, I'm sure. Now, the next story we have is Mako shark grabs fish tied to rope. Tug of war ensues. From USA Today, July 21, 2022. Now, that sounds ridiculous, I know. Why would you have a tug of war with a shark? But it actually turns out that this is somewhat of a, a cool story because it involves a friend of ours. This is Keith Poe. He's a Southern Californian shark tagger. And he's literally wrestling a 12-foot mako shark that has grabbed onto a piece of bait on the end of a rope. There's no hook involved whatsoever. And he's actually out there on a tagging mission to find these species. And what we see is just the beauty and power of this very large shark as it does not want to let go of the bait. Now, it, it might come as a surprise to you to think that, you know, sharks aren't just out there eating all the time. They actually don't need to eat all that much. But when they do, when they commit, they're voracious about it. And when there's an easy meal just sitting there, that shark will not want to let go. There's not a chance. So the video is actually pretty funny because you got Keith there yanking on the rope, the shark yanking back, and eventually... Keith actually wins. The shark lets go and disappears for a little bit. But it highlights this very beautiful species, and it's something we're going to learn a whole lot more about with one of the world experts in mako sharks, Dr. Riley Elliott, who's coming up next. Today, I'm stoked to welcome a special guest. One of our favorites on Shark Week is Dr. Riley Elliott. He's a star of Discovery's Shark Week special, Clash of Killers, Great Whites versus Makos, also known as the Shark Man. Got to ask him about that. Welcome to the show, Riley. Yeah, g'day, Luke. Always a pleasure, mate. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome, mate. So what got you started with Makos? Where does the passion come from? Uh, it's ironic, actually. It's because I did my PhD on blue sharks, um, and I started that 2010. Um, and a colleague of mine now, Mike Barner, who's uh, you know underwater cameraman from way back in the day, he gave me the opportunity to go tag the blue sharks because he was filming some stuff. He said, if I could be a dickhead on the boat, maybe there'd be some time to catch some blue sharks and tag them. And out of that, I started to realize that blue sharks and mako sharks, they, they live symbiotically together because they occupy the same niche, but morphologically and behaviorally, they're the total opposites. One's a glider and one's a jet fighter. And, and unlike the great white and the mako, we're talking about clashes. These two operate totally differently, which means they can exist in the same niche. But when you're diving them with blue sharks, it means you get makos too. And what got me into them was blue sharks are the easiest, funnest, coolest shark in the world to swim with. Um, you've got to be hands-on with them, otherwise they will bite you because they're just so curious. But you've got this, what we call slow motion nightmare of a blue shark, you know, which is relatively easy to control. But then you get the, if the polar opposite of mako shark turns up, it's like this fast lightning that you can't keep track of. And then if you get multiple animals, it's just absolutely carnage. So... What got me into the marker was it was always the secondary challenging aspect that would turn up when I'm trying to work. And I had to learn how to uh, not control that at all, but basically learn how to coexist with that pressure. Because when a marker turns up, it is the most intense animal. It will bite everything. It will smash into everything. It is so hypercharged and intense. And I'll generally get out so it can sort that out with the engine and the prop and the other sharks. 
And then it'll calm down and, and a hierarchy has been established and then you get in, it's all good. But then another Marco turns up and geez, it all lights up again. And what will happen is the smallest shark will generally become the, the, the most dangerous because it becomes opportunistic and flighty. Um, but at the same time, you got to get face on with the big one that just turned up. And again, I'll generally get out, let them establish their hierarchy and then I'll kind of like slip into it. Um, but that curiosity grew obviously. And, and the further offshore you get, the bigger the Marcos and Blues get generally. And for everyone out there, just to put a, a, a pin in this one, it's Mako. That is how you say the shark's name, Mako. And it's a Māori word, which is the indigenous people of New Zealand. Uh, it, it means tooth fish. Um, and it's a hard word to pronounce, so don't get me wrong, because we all say Mako, Mako, and uh, it's like we say potato, potato. But, but I, I want to I get this right. Mako, is that right? If you think of the O at the end as or. Or. or so it's Mark or. Or. okay it's hard it's I really like it's, that. you gotta like or like put your mouth like an owl or yeah with with respect to the maoris the aussies call them makers so i'll stick to that but i, I acknowledge that i'm wrong yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm, yeah. Man, I'm man enough to say when i'm wrong there but uh our accents are weird um so after all this study and i think it's hilarious that uh you got into makos because they were kind of in in the way of your research um, <laughs> <laughs> literally yeah it's, it's like that 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 suitor in the corner who's just continually just like hey what about me what about me what about me and then suddenly that's yeah. you know that's I the think, the winner I think there i got into sharks cuz i'm a surfer uh, as as you probably did too, I imagine. And um, I did too. Yeah. And it's it's funny because you kind of wish you didn't in a way because now I can't I can't say <laughs> ignorance is bliss because I'll 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 actually calculate the risk everywhere I go surfing. And well, taking it back past like beginning surfing, what really got you into sharks to start with? Ironically, I was studying dolphins. Um, I wasn't. I didn't have my slogan there called the Shark Man. I was the Dolphin Man, so to speak. <laughs> and um. But where I was studying dolphins, it was in Fiordland, the bottom of New Zealand. It's a very Jurassic Park wild place. No one's around. And it's a fjord, so it drops super, super deep into the ocean. And you're swimming around, like trying to do your dolphin research as I was. And uh, you just look down into this dark abyss and you know that stuff down there can see you, but you can't see it. And my education at the time was like most people's just jaws. Uh, I knew it was great white country down there. And uh, one day, as I say to the school kids, I saw it coming up, man. It's coming up full bore. Its fins are out. Its mouth is open. I peed in my wetsuit. I shot to the surface. I braced myself with the Jaws poster. And it was like a one-foot-long school shark. And I just, like, laughed like that. Yeah. And then I said to the kids, but then I was ashamed because here I am trying to be a scientist, trying to figure out the facts of what things are to better understand them. And I realized I knew nothing about sharks. And, um, and, and I ironically went back to university and on the wall was a flyer to go to Oceans Research Internship, which we see on Shark Week a lot with Enrique Gennari. Um, and I went for a six-week internship to work with Great Whites. And from the first day I saw one there, I was like, this is what I want to do. And I've never looked back. I've worked hard. I've been privileged for opportunities. But at the end of the day, passion my passion slapped me in the face and ironically it's like the thing as a surfer you don't want to see and you don't <laughs> talk about and and unfortunately for my surfer side you know ignorance is no longer bliss but i think that's the way it should be if you're going to go play in the wild environment yeah it sounds like you're working your way up the predatory food chain there you're like hey i'm into dolphins <laughs> until a shark got in the way then i was into blue sharks until a mako got in the way then i went to makos until a great white gets in the way What's next? Yeah. <laughs> well, I tell you from New Zealand where there's nothing on land that can hurt you at all, 
you've got to go into the ocean to get that predatory cycle. <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest thing on this island is like a, a small wild pig or something. So we saw you this year messing around with Makos as well as Great Whites, eh? Yeah, it was, uh, I guess, trying to put the two two titans up against each other in a way. You know, um, myself and people like Joe Romero have worked pretty hard to get the Marco, you know, up on the pedestal with the other top three because... Um, I don't know if any of you have ever swum with a Marco Shark before. It's got an intensity that really is unrivaled by any of those other three. Um, and there are massive ones. And uh, for me, following Marco Shark migration in New Zealand and seeing how climate variables kind of have pushed animal migrations uh, to further extents, um, it became quite apparent that there was an opportunity that that two of the Titans, the, the Marco and the Great White, might be actually overlapping with each other. And uh for me, not only is that a great UFC fight, you know, but that is um, biologically very relevant because these are two quite different yet very highly related animals. Yeah, and what was the result of that? Basically, it proved to be very, very challenging. And that is because these animals where we're trying to follow their migrations is out in the open ocean. And this is off the east coast of New Zealand. Um, it is super raw out there. This is where the roaring 40s meets the tropical cyclones and it pinches off the eastern coast of the North Island of New Zealand. And, and we started in Stewart Island. Uh, it, was, it was peak summer season. It was actually really nice weather, believe it or not. We only had two days to, to shoot it, which if you've ever been to Stewart Island, is not a good amount of time. Um, it, it can change rapidly. But we scored two amazing days there, had amazing sharks, and saw that at that point in time, at the end of summer, they are fat, they are big, and, God, they were desperate just to fuel up because then they migrate, and we know that. Um, but what we don't know and what hasn't really been investigated through Shark Weeks or research in general is, is what they do when they leave these seal colonies and, and migrate. And, and knowing then what the Marco migration was doing coming from the north, moving down with moving warm water, uh, was that these two could intercept. And, and we basically chased these two migrations through the gnarliest weather I have ever been in um, to, to basically reveal that they do intercept. But very unique predator avoidance behavior was observed in that the great white almost gives way to the marker migration by going into a what we called a zombie-like state. And, and we revealed this not through uh, seeing them together, but we, we got, gathered some actual very unique insight from video footage of a fisherman who saw one of these ma massive great whites migrating and, and his boat was driving within feet of it. It didn't react at all, and it was it was fully just turned off at the at the brain basically. And biologically, we investigated that, coupled that with some tag data, and really, you know, theorized that they're shutting down their cognitive system, the great whites, because they're migrating and they're trying to save energy. And the laminated sharks, uh, the warm-blooded quasi ones of the great white, the marco, and the poor beagle, and the salmon, um, they're warm-blooded so they can turn on a brain, so they can act like a predator at speed and, and attack. Um, but that's very expensive. So if you're migrating, you're not trying to do those complicated things. So that's why we theorize the great whites shut down that brain. They do a diving behavior that, that acts to avoid the Marcos because they are in full flight mode. They are hunting marlin and swordfish. They are geared up and they are pumped up, and we saw that in the flesh out at the Ranfrilly Bank. So it was very insightful in the sense that the seemingly top dog, the great white, the bigger of the animals mostly – was actually being very conservative, predator avoiding. Um, but I think that they do come in contact because we know these great whites have to pit stop and feed on these migrations. 
And the Ranfurly Banks is probably one of those spots. And we, we had anecdotal evidence from guys we met and went with that they've seen these two sharks interacting. So there's still definitely some, um, you know, leftover work there I would really like to pursue. But one thing that you don't see in these Shark Week shows, and Luke, you've been on these, you probably know it more than anyone, is you face so many hurdles when you try and chase nature. And we ended up being stuck behind White Island, which is an active volcano where we knew we shouldn't anchor because it's spewing sulfuric acid out of it and it's floating all over our boat because we're in the lee of the island to try and get out of what ended up being 60 knot winds that we had to overnight. And, and like we were all grown men just about crying and wanting to go back to our partners, and you know, because it was terrifying. But um, it's the things that you do and the work that we do and the privilege that it is really to go chase nature. But, man, it was hard, this one. Honestly, it was so hard. That sounds incredibly difficult. Now, there's a, there's a lot to unpack in there. So. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> but, no, that, that's great. So let's uh, – I mean, with your breadth of knowledge, particularly with these species, we're talking about some of the, the heroes of Shark Week, the favorites that everyone has up on their wall, especially the kids out there who are, like, lusting after getting out and getting having these big ocean adventures like you're describing that apparently you are blubbering your way through. But <laughs> uh, let's talk about some basic stuff. So the difference between great whites and mako sharks, particularly with what you're discussing where you're talking about shutting down brains versus not having to and the energetic benefits of both. Yeah. Well, put simply, the biggest difference between these two animals is, is the environment they live in and where they predominantly feed. So great whites are to be honest, quite easy to find because you go to a seal colony and they're there munching seals, as we've seen in Discovery Channel shown so amazingly over the decades. And they do that predominantly when the seal pups are being weaned from their mothers, which means they stop giving them milk, and they have to learn how to go out to the open ocean and start hunting fish. Um, and these seals at one year old don't really know what a great white is, and they have instinct and a bit of like follow the leader but that is the vulnerable seal, which is what the great white capitalizes on. Now, the Marco shark is far different. It actually hunts a far gnarlier prey species than a seal, being, you know, 12 foot long swordfish or marlin with big swords on their face. And we saw some dramatic insight of those animals in this show. And, and even, we got even scared when we were in our own shark cage because it wasn't designed for these swords coming at us. And um, that, that big difference means that they hunt very differently, but ultimately both of them have evolved a similar warm-blooded system, which like us, you need warm blood to keep an engine like a brain running if you're doing complex tasks. It's why uh, reptiles have to warm up on a rock, so to speak, so they can get that body warm enough to operate. Um, so the Great Whites and the Marco both do this, but they can shift where they move that warm blood depending on what's being required. So if a marker was in full hunt mode and it's trying to like use its binocular vision to target a fast-moving, highly dangerous piece of prey, it will be using its brain super, super, supercharged, and it will be driving a lot of energy um, through that organ in order to calculate that. Likewise with a great white when it's hunting a seal. But when a great white then goes, cool, I'm full, the seals have disappeared, I now just need to swim from A to Z, which happens to be thousands of kilometers or miles, um, from New Zealand to the tropics, it seemingly, what we learned from this video footage, which is the first time I've ever seen it, seemingly is not reacting as a great white we usually see is, which would be, you know, avoiding or at least being intrigued by something around it. This great white did not move an inch as this huge boat came right up within feet of it. 
And then eventually the great white kind of almost came out of its days and saw the boat and, and it turns away and it's like, whoa, what the hell was that? But the big difference seen was the intensity of the marker sharks because they are in full hunt mode. It was more akin to the great whites when we saw them at the Seal Islands down in Stewart Island. But this one that had been seen migrating in the open ocean was a totally different animal. And I think, you know, that's the amazing thing about Shark Week. It gives us an opportunity to go discover new things. And, and that was a very novel piece of information. Yeah. And you've obviously got tagging data from great whites and seeing their migratory routes, understanding they're going from perhaps a seal colony to a, another area that might be energetically beneficial or trying to find, you know, perhaps a mate in some area. But we know that they're regularly traveling. So did that video lend any um, support to the theories that the tagging data showed beforehand? Because in the tagging data, you'll know that they're swimming slower or just beelining it somewhere or diving up and down. You can see predatory behavior going on, right? Yeah. I mean, the one thing sharks are good at is is energy efficiency. Like they're the, they're the boss of it. And um, we have great data, tagging data from New Zealand scientists, uh, Clinton Duffy, Malcolm Francis, um, which shows, and we showed it in the show, where like the behavior of the animals when they're at Seal Islands is at the surface. They're hunting animals that breathe air. So like it makes sense. As soon as they start migrating, they were doing these huge, big, deep dives, these repetitive deep dives. And there's a whole bunch of theories for that. And this is how, you know, novel shark science is, is we're still learning. I did my PhD in exactly the subject and there's still contention in it, which is, are they diving because they're gliding and they're using it as like an efficiency thing to save energy? But we see that their descent rate is not one that would be associated with gliding. So then we think, oh, are they predating? And they go below depths of where there is food, below the deep scattering layer. Is it then that they're actually counterintuitively going deep to get into cold water because it slows their metabolism and therefore makes them use less energy? Um, well, sometimes they're not going into those depths, and then why come back up? And the other one is predator avoidance. Are they trying to like basically stay under the radar, so to speak? And, and I think the footage that we saw showed you know some some like firsthand insight in the flesh of what this animal looks like when it is migrating and that was very much in an energy efficient mode although this one was at the surface um i think it, it gave another piece into the puzzle which is that it's likely a combination of all those factors i just said why these animals move the way they do because they've done it for hundreds of millions millions of years they would have figured out the perfect recipe and how to be most efficient Sure. But wouldn't a great white sort of chilling in this, you know, zombie-like state just open it up to more predation? Yeah. Well, that, that was, this is why science is great because you go back and forth like this in a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that is why perhaps you'd think it going at depth would be um, avoiding anything because most food's at the surface, but this shark was at the surface. And so it may be that the great white just has such confidence in itself or it has a detection mechanism like a radar going on that if something does come into its area that it's, it's biologically attuned to wake up to, it might do that. And they have the lateral line and things like that that might literally be waiting for that type of predator frequency versus a boat, which would be far different. So there's, there's so much that could be possible here. What is the way that science works is we add little pieces of fact on top of one another to move the general understanding of, of whatever the question is. But um, yeah, bottom line, Luke, there's, there's so much to learn still and, and who knows, but that, that was insightful. And for me, to be honest, like the payoff would have been great in this show to see these two animals bashing each other up and who was the boss. 
but nature is much smarter than that. You don't see, you know, lions uh, tackling tigers because they've evolved to be in two different areas. There's generally only one chief, you know, in a, in a, in a biological realm. And I think that occurs in these realms and there is overlap, but they avoid or change their behaviors that they don't need to compete. And that would be smart evolution. Now, I'm curious if they are cohabiting at least at sometimes the same areas of water, but the Mako is so much faster and so much more ferocious. Why wouldn't they try to take over some of the great whites turf and hunt the seals? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, to be honest, they probably did. And, and, and this will be a long-winded answer to this, which is how I generally do it. But it's, 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 it's context and it's theories as we evolve through seeing things. So, for example, in California, Marco sharks, there's quite a few large ones. And we, I think later on we might talk about Keith Poe um, tug-of-warring with one. The, the big Marcos there are known to hunt seals. And that's, that's like not a common understanding of Marco sharks. You know, they're more pelagic hunters. But Marco sharks, historically, there's been catches of ones that were 21 feet. There was one in uh, Italy, I believe, in the Med, which now is, you know, a desert for sharks generally. So Marco shark used to get as big as great whites. And it's the fact that we fished them so hard out that the average size of a Marco now is probably four to six feet. Um, so you imagine a Marco shark at 20 feet, the same size as a great white. Their teeth evolve like a great white from needles into cutting triangles. And there is um, fact that shows Marco do hunt uh, seals. So I believe that those two definitely probably competed. Um, unfortunately for the Marco, it's not been protected. It's been fished out in fisheries. Uh, and unlike the great white, you know, which has got protection, it's num the, the Marco's numbers have dropped, whereas the great whites have gone up. So it's kind of an unfair playing field. And I, I really do think that those two probably did compete when they were allowed to be at the same level. Now, uh, earlier in the show, we were talking about um, our friend Keith Poe, who found a, you know, a fairly large mako given today's standards, as you say. You know, 12 feet shouldn't be necessarily an anomalistic large mako, but it is these days. And uh, he was displaying the ferocity that they attack with by, you know, the sharks just not letting that piece of bait go. Um, with your experience, characterize for us the, you know, attack behavior and nature of the mako shark. Yeah, well, firstly, knowing Marco's, uh, that's the most polite girl I've ever seen. I mean, geez, <laughs> she, she, she didn't even, she didn't attack that at all. She just came and said, this is mine. And then Keith didn't want to give up the bonito on the end of the rope. And um, that was a very polite interaction. Um, to give you context, seeing a shark, a 12-foot Marco like that is very, very hard to find. Keith's really good at finding them there. Um, but it is rare. That's why we don't see it often. I got lucky enough uh, in Mako Nation to, to bump into them, but in the which was in 2020 for Shark Week. But in my recce trips for that, um, I was out diving off Mare Island uh, without a cage with Sean Heinrichs, and this was me pushing my limits. You know, like I hadn't I hadn't dove with you know big mature makers before, and I've worked my way up through you know 15 years being taught by people like Mike Barner, who was the first ever to free dive with these guys and, and made a Shark Week show back in the day on it. Um, and they are a very dangerous animal because imagine going around the seal colony and swimming around, you just wouldn't do it because you know that they come up and ambush and hunt there. 
Well, a marker was so quick because it's Seal Island is out there in the blue water and it has to ambush from, you know, 300 feet away. So it has to cover that ground very quickly. And Sean Heinrichs and I were swimming with this big Marco. It was, you know, 11 foot. It was a beautiful interaction. We had about two hours with it. And, and I said to him, I've got a gut feeling, mate. I, this has been too good for too long. I think we should get out. He's like, no, mate, no, this is, this is fantastic. This is, why would we get out? I was like, look, just trust me. I've got a gut feeling. We swim back to the boat. We turn around before we get out and uh, we see this beautiful marker coming towards us on the surface. And then from below, an absolute tank of a thing is coming up full ballistic speed. And we just instinctively jump, turn out, get into the boat, turn around expecting an atomic bomb of blood. But because the marker shark has lateral lines, it could detect the shark coming. It got out of the way. But two minutes earlier, we were there. We were smaller targets. We never would have seen it coming. And one of us would have been sliced in half. And that's just the way the Marcos hunt. They cut something up, see what it was later. And uh, Bob's your uncle. So my point being is swimming with these large Marco sharks is a whole different kettle of fish. And that's because they are so dangerous, so hard to find. And to be frank, you'd have to be an idiot to go do it without decades of experience because it, it, for me, it's as dangerous as it gets. And that's why you've probably seen me evolve my diving with sharks and getting a bit older, you get a bit smarter. I'm using more cages with those animals and at least Perspex ones because, to be frank, I don't want to die. you got to realize sharks, as lovable and as much as we stand up for them, they're a highly capable predator. And it's about respect, you know. Like, this is how they hunt and understanding their behavior you, you need to calculate for that. And this isn't a one-on-one -on -one looking at each other, the eye contact, all that stuff. They come up first and hit and then ask. So bring it into context to Keith Poe. Um, that was a shark that's probably been circling around for a while. There's not a big floating animal on the surface like it expects a swordfish to be. It's coming for an investigation. It goes, oh, yeah, I don't mind taking that. But it's not going to exert a lot of energy other than thrashing around trying to get this. Um, because basically it's just playing there. But what I do love about what Keith shows is, is that is a big Marco shark. Now, you can get in and swim with that, and sure, you might be fine. You might get the right girl. But it's the one you don't see that is the danger. And if you're playing out there in the big Marco territory, they're hunting stuff that's three times your size. But uh, with all this data that is revealing itself and apparently us seeing that Makos are you know, on the decline, which they are, and could potentially be in different spaces than they're being forced to be right now if they weren't being fished. How do we get the data needed to make a, a case for protecting them just like we are the Great Whites? Yeah, it's, 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 I literally just had a meeting last night with our government entities here because we're, we're trying to achieve that now with a, a government review of our policies. And the long story short is um, I learned a lot about the marker through my PhD on blues because they're caught in the same fishery, in the tuna longline fishery. And all of the problems the blue shark faces, the maker was too. Um, but the marker is being exploited in a, in a, in a worse way because its meat is valuable as well. And it also matures and breeds a lot slower than a blue shark. So that is why it has been, you know, faced demise a lot worse than a blue shark because the blue shark is the most populous big pelagic shark in the world. It, it breeds like a mouse, you know, in, in shark terms, so to speak. Um, whereas the marker is more like a great white, breeds very slowly. So, Well, let, let's you, define that for people. I don't want to step on you there, but um, get specific about it. You know, blue sharks, their breeding cycle versus a mako, for example. Yeah. 
So a blue shark grows really quick, like, uh, you know, almost two feet a year. It matures at about, you know, five to eight years at about six feet in length. And they can have up to 135 pups, whereas a marker shark is more like a great white. It grows slower. It's only mature at about 12 feet. And that takes 30 odd years. And then it'll have a handful of pups. So you're just you're hitting two different levels of what we call fecundity, which is the rate of reproduction. And, and what that's meant is the same fishing pressure has been put on both these animals through tuna longlining, shark finning, et cetera. Um, but the reproduction rate of a marco is, is you know, a tenth, if not a hundredth, of a blue shark. So its populations have crashed a lot more. And the solution to this, in general, is getting better data to manage these because on a global scale, the data that we use to manage it is basically how many are reported by the fishermen that they catch. And that is known to be, you know, one one hundredth of what's reported. It's known to be biased and it's known to have a lot of data errors. And what we're trying to do in New Zealand now is really ambassador for cameras on boats that are basically not a camera to spy on the fishermen, but look over the edge where they pull in the fish and enforce then the rules that you try and employ, uh, things like live release of sharks. And it also counts then all the sharks that are caught and it gives us the golden child of, of data gathering where you know exactly how many animals are coming and with that you can then make what are accurate and, and beneficial management policies. So that is the way forward in my eyes because it's the ill transparency of the high seas fisheries which is causing demise not just to sharks but to all bycatch species. Is it then possible for any one country to have a significant difference in the protection of the makers? Massively. Massively. And that is why New Zealand, I really try to push this country to be a leader. In New Zealand, they are, they are very culturally important to the Māori people. Um, and for that reason, I think we have tried to campaign their best protection. But what you realise is even in a country like this, where we're generally seen as progressive, you know, the lobbyists from the fishing industry really put the brakes on us, for example, supporting them even in CITES being listed there. Yet the rest of the world majority did. And they got passed on that, which is great. So we had to jump on the same ship. But the example being that if you catch sharks here in New Zealand and you ill-treat them or you hurt their population, those are the same sharks that they move into, say, Polynesia in our tropical waters. And in Polynesia, they're seen as gods. They're protected. Um, and so therefore, one country's industry can definitely affect the, the, the greater population. And that is why the great white shark received international protection was because Nicole, the chick shark, swam between New Zealand and Australia showing interconnectivity between uh, jurisdictions. And that's what gave it the, 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 the justification for global support. But yeah, who's, who's catching them? Yeah, well, uh, I've got mates who fish in New Zealand waters and if they go to the edge of our exclusive economic zone, which is 200 nautical miles, there will be fleets of Spanish you know, longliners uh, just sitting on seamounts, fishing it out, going to the next seamount. And uh, not just Spanish, but, uh, you know, a lot of the Asian countries come down here. Basically, where they fished out in other areas of the world, the pressure then moves to the places that haven't been fished out. And the South Pacific is a very big ocean compared to other oceans. And there's really only New Zealand down here in the bottom of it, you know. And so there's a lot of terrain to cover. But where you get uh, aggregations of these large pelagics is generally where you've got seamounts and they tend to be around the periphery of, of you know, continents or islands. So there's a lot of pressure, and that's why I think um, you definitely need that inter-jurisdictional protection and agreement. But as we've seen in anything in life, that's a hard thing to get uh, for whatever you're talking about. Yeah, 
we've we've spoken about that before where you know it's possible but is it possible within the time we have left you know it's you know as as the the swell of support increases while we're also depleting the stock you know is it's that weird little race that we're in to see if we can kind of win it but it's also guys like you who are out there getting the data that you know gives us a, a an advantage in capturing the opportunity we have to you know save these species which is bloody awesome mate i think um what is the coolest thing and people ask me oh why do you do shark week aren't you like a real scientist and i say to people Shark Week is the biggest platform for communication of things about sharks in the world, and that's undisputed. And so if you have a message that's important, um, you should convey it through the largest platform you can, which is the huge reason why I do and am passionate and am privileged and humbled to do Shark Week, because I've also learned through people like David Attenborough that if you create beautiful, stimulating visual imagery, people can connect empathetically with something they may not understand or is that complicated. And with sharks, showing people these big marcos or out of beautiful blue water and a human interacting with them, you know, gives an, an empathetic connectivity that otherwise is not possible. It, you know, to, to, as an example of parallel, it's why aquariums exist. You know, they're not ideal, but people can't go out into the open ocean and see a marco shark. Now, you can't see one in the aquarium, but I can show you one through what we do. And that enables a connectivity. Then when we say, look, you should help protect this animal, people can actually justify that because they feel it great i mean people need to see these animals and learn about what the animals do for for their own environment i mean it, the the oceans are critically important to every single person on the planet and the health of those ecosystems is just as important even if you're not dipping your feet in the water so yeah i, I couldn't agree more uh, you know shark week is is it is the megaphone that we need for these animals um but also it's recognizing that much of the real work is happening not on camera. It's guys like yourself going out there and spending days and days and weeks on the ocean collecting the data, doing the work in the government or offices and you know, protecting these species, which is amazing. Why do you justify going out and doing this other than just a PR campaign for sharks? Short answer, because I never lost the nature kid in me and it's just bloody fun. Um, you know, I... I for a background story on this, to create a Shark Week show is incredibly difficult, okay? We just had Shark Week, but for the last weeks, even before that, I was having to sit on my chair and come up with other ideas to do. And this is the way Shark Week works. You, the scientists or production companies come up with ideas, pitch them to the heads of Shark Week. They pick which repertoire of them they want, and then you've got to go make it happen. For me, I've always based those ideas on what I've seen that's interesting or things I know I should be able to deliver and that are up my alley, which are credible, scientifically enhancing, tell a good story, which is important, but also help the sharks that were ultimately, you know, exploiting for entertainment, so to speak. And that's a big logistical thing. But what I've been really stoked to grow in is, is the first time I did Shark Week, I was a student at university and I don't know how they found me, but they're like, can you come and narrate this one with now who I admire so much, Greg Scomal, but I didn't know who he was at the time, but it was like counting down the top 10 deadliest sharks. And to this day, I still have no idea how I got that role, but it was my entrance. I got like 500 bucks and a free meal and I was stoked because I was a student. And now to grow through just through pure intrigue of telling stories, I almost enjoy the producing side just as much as I do presenting the shows because it's the challenge of, of having to learn how to tell good stories. 
and and having to make them you know resonate with the audience, which is Shark Week, and and that's why you got to appreciate the spectrum which we see in Shark Week as far as the range of shows from say Jackass to me, which is that there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't know anything about sharks, and they need perhaps a palatable entry point, which may be Jackass introducing them to sharks, and then they're on the train, and then they see oh the next one, and they may then see a few more shows, and you slowly capture them in as opposed to the easy sell people who are already intrigued by science and animals and see, say, perhaps one of my shows and go, oh, what Shark Week is that? So I think it's really important to realize that the megaphone we're using is TV, it is entertainment. And I think sharks are really privileged that there's a Shark Week because, you know, lions and elephants and all them, you know, having hard times in the wild too and don't have their own week. So I think it's, it's, it's really cool. And it, but it is very hard work, and I think that's not acknowledged enough. And and Shark Week goes out, and it airs, and then these guys, you know, who work for Discovery Channel and, and run this stuff, have to get straight back on the train into creating magic again. And it, it is very difficult, and it is such a changing environment. It's hard to keep up. But um, I've had an absolute wild ride, and I really hope I'm like the Greg Scomels, or if you're still here, and you know, the, the late fifties or wherever he is at, because it's incredibly fun. I, I, it's such an incredibly valuable tool. But having done all the work this year, I hear you're off to uh, have some fun on your own, right? Yeah. Um, right now in New Zealand, it doesn't always look blue water and sunny skies, um, especially with uh, climate change. Right now it's pouring with rain. It's been horrible and our island is flooding and people are being evacuated from their homes. And now I feel guilty for saying that I'm going to Indonesia for a three-week surf trip. Um, but it is well-deserved because it's been a you know head down in the office for me for the last four months after after delivering my last Shark Week show, uh, prepping for the next ones, which are some very exciting shows I've got coming up, which are fantastic with, uh, with great whites. And, um, yeah, it's just, oh, it's, it's just good times. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for this. I get asked a lot from people, how do you get into this industry? And to be frank, there's no magic path. I think the, the, the commonality between yourself, other colleagues of ours in Shark Week, um, is that, you just never gave up on what you were interested in. And people say, oh, you can follow your passion. Well, that's just half the, the rule. The other half is you've got to persist. You've got to work hard. And, and if that is your passion, then it is a lot easier to persist through hurdles than if it's something you're not interested in. And, um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just super grateful to Discovery Channel and Shark Week because I, this is my dream. I'm having such a good time. And I think it's because I'm ticking so many of the different boxes, not just for myself, but what I say to kids when I speak at their schools, you can't just do something and become successful because you're good at it. It's also got to improve the world and help people because otherwise, why would anyone support it? Um, so I think that's quite important. I think that's the lesson. If you're going to do something, make sure it is you know, helping out our society and our earth because it really needs it right now. Well, mate, I hope you score. Hope you get a few weeks off and then come back and keep doing the good work you're doing. And uh, we look forward to seeing you on next year's Shark Week. Awesome, Luke. Thank you so much. Cheers so much to Discovery Channel and Shark Week. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Riley Elliott. And as you can tell, he's a passionate guy about sharks. One of my favorite persons to watch because he is so knowledgeable and he's legit. I mean, the guy's a PhD graduate. He's a doctor. He knows a lot about sharks and he's the first to admit that we don't know everything that's out there. Now, one of the things that he's so passionate about obviously is Makos and I think he made a really excellent point that Makos are not seeing the level of protection that great whites have. 
you know, great whites are our trophy species. They're the Shark Week poster. Every single Shark Week poster almost is a great white shark. And that's great. We love them. But the world needs to recognize that we can't just look at these big trophy species and think, oh, our job's done. You know, great whites are coming back in much of the world, which is fantastic news. But our work is very far from done. We have niches that sharks like the Mako shark, they fill and they do their job in a certain area. Great whites can't take up that niche. You know, we need Makos. We need all of these species to be thriving and surviving and doing their job in the particular niche of the ocean that they habitate. So I think Riley and everyone else who is working on Makos, continue to work because we need more accountability for the Makos who are getting pulled out of the water. We need to understand that Makos need longer to survive. That 12-foot shark that we saw up in the top of the show shouldn't be an anomaly. As Riley said, that is a healthy breeding age shark, but really not as big as they should be. We should be seeing much larger Makos around and that shouldn't be as rare as it is. And with such a long-traveled species, they, they're highly, highly migratory. We're going to need cooperation from a lot of people. And I hope New Zealand can set the standard for that and make some real progress in the protection of Makos. And okay, that's it for today's episode. I want you to stay tuned to this feed as we continue to cover the sharkiest current topics. We'll talk to top scientists and experts and learn about the latest conservation efforts to keep this amazing animal from extinction. Thank you for listening to Shark Week, the podcast. Be sure to rate us five stars and subscribe for more shark fun facts. Until next time, I'm Luke Tipple. I'll chat to you soon.